power is a good thing for people to have. It can be misused by ugly cliques who take over governments or who exercise some coercion on people or, 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 or make people, you know, degrade themselves and help, help them to do that. But, but power in history is what we're aiming for, the power of human beings to do good. Welcome to the Political Economy Project with the goal of creating universal prosperity for today and future generations. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with author and historian Anton Chaikin, and we'll be discussing his book, Who We Are, America's Fight for Universal Progress from Franklin to Kennedy, Volume 1, 1750s to 1850s, which provides a new understanding of the Industrial Revolution and the strategic context for America's founding. Anton, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Evan. It's wonderful to be with you. So could you begin by introducing yourself? Well, I've been involved in history writing for several decades, starting really in the 1970s. When I was in my early 20s, I, I ran into Lyndon LaRouche in New York City. And he, he proposed that there was a, a change in the uh, strategy by the financiers who were powerful in New York and other places. And they were going to abandon the philosophy that, that the U.S. had had before about producing and increasing living standards in that way. And they were going to substitute a predatory strategy for the country against foreign countries who were poor to keep them poor and against the population of the U.S. and Europe. Basically, the British approach from the British Empire. We had set up an association at that time in 1966, and I participated in the study of 20th century history writing along with some other aspects of academia, showing that the history and, and of culture from the late 19th and, and through the 20th century was brutal and an abandonment and a betrayal of both the Renaissance and, and even Christian heritage of the United States and also the founding ideas of the country. And that no part of the political spectrum, conservative or liberal, addressed the fundamental problems confronting the world at that time. In fact, the U.S. was plunging into banality and, and, to, and, and cruelty as a, as a culture and, and, and its leadership was propelling that. So I wrote a number of articles, always trying to feature new, new discoveries about the contest on two sides in our history and in world history between two outlooks on man and two purposes for, for ruling. And I, I did two books before this recent one. One book was called Treason in America from Aaron Burr to Averill Harriman. And the other was George Bush, the unauthorized biography. That was about Bush senior. I was co-author co of that book. 
I did the history part of that book. So and I believe thanks. I believe that book showed up in a documentary about the election, Bill Clinton, and it yes. was on the, on the shelf as well. So they were using it for yeah. some preparation against H.W. Bush. Yes. This is a screenshot from that movie. I actually, it's called The War Room. I think you should rent the movie. Here's yeah. uh, the Ray Carville. Yeah. Yeah. And and he's the campaign manager for Clinton. And you see the book. Right here, they they stuck it as a prop in the movie or part my book uh, because they wanted to let Bush know that they were on to him, that the Bush family had helped to sponsor Hitler. And so I wasn't overall very pleased with Clinton's presidency, but anyway, that contributed something to getting him out. All, all the political people in the country read that. So, so in 2000... But 2007, I was in South Africa and Lesotho, and I met this gentleman who told me that George W. Bush, the younger, that their grandfather, Prescott Bush, was working with the Nazis. And at that time, I was like, that's that's incredible. I can't believe that because George W. Bush, you know, they would have found out about it. In the and the media would have shared that, and they would have shared that his father, and and so there were two presidents, and I've never heard of this before. But your background with your father as a New York attorney fought in the courts to break this Wall Street and London sponsorship of the Nazi regime in Germany, including yeah. lawsuits against international Nazi interests that were managed yeah. by Prescott Bush, the father and grandfather, the two presidents. So right. could you talk about that entire situation and even growing up as a, a young, young man? You know? Well, first of all, the Bush connection to this is most important in what's the background of the first President Bush. He is a, the son of a very, very prominent banker. His family made its money in banking in the Brown Brothers Harriman firm. Previously, it was W.H. Harriman and, and company. And this is a firm associated with the, what we call the Eastern liberal establishment, that word liberal having undergone a tremendous change. And then we all, it's also associated with the British crown. There's several, there were several key law firms or investment banks and law firms that on wall street that are rooted in the British establishment, banking and crown. And this establishment in London and New York uh, played the, a, a, a really the central role, if you take include the Bank of England, in promoting and, and seeing to it that Hitler and his party and faction took power in Germany in 1933. Uh, so the, the father, Prescott Bush, father of George H.W., was the manager of a lot of the accounts and activities of the bank in New York. In that bank, they had a unit, a special bank, Union Banking Corporation, that was devoted to the fundraising apparatus of the Nazi Party, and that was all it was about. It was it was it was the, it was the personal bank account of Fritz Thyssen, where he parked as 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 it was reported in New York newspapers, three million dollars in gold 
for those purposes. He's the chief fundraiser for Hitler. The property of that bank was seized by the FDR administration in 1942 under the Trading with the Enemy Act. And all this is, is documented. And, and so it's not an opinion. I didn't, I tried not to express too many opinions, but just let the facts march in the in the book, my father was the strategist and legal counsel for the what was called the joint boycott conducted by the American Jewish Congress, boycott of Nazi Germany, right at the start of the Hitler regime. And he conducted on his own lawsuits against firms controlled by the Brown Brothers Harriman Bank with Prescott Bush in the middle and other, some other Wall Street entities, but these were firms like a shipping company in Germany and steel companies that were jointly owned by Wall Street and Hitler, the Hitler government and Wall Street firms. My father went to court to block a credit, credit arrangements that had been made where they stopped payment on debts to American bondholders so the money could go to Hitler to buy weapons. And my father won every case that he did many, many cases in New York courts. And the opposing lawyer in the first case in New York Municipal Court was John Foster Dulles on behalf of basically Hitler and Wall Street. And he was later the, the Secretary of State. He and his brother, Alan, who was later head of CIA, were the most important lawyers brokering the deal to prop up Adolf Hitler. And he, and, and, and really right at the end of the war, betrayed Franklin Roosevelt in trying to get a surrender of Germany that would not put them out of action, but put the German army right back, keep, keep them going to continue the war against the Soviet Union, against FDR's explicit idea. So this, this is the background that, that I, I grew up against this background, but I didn't know very much about this. I, my father died when I was 12 years old. I had to look him up. And the problem is that, as, you're, as you say, these things are not just embarrassing to the present rulers of the United States and Britain, but the people of the United States and Britain have changed their philosophy to a large extent. And so there is willful ignorance about history in many ways that we should really discuss. And that, that involves the lack of empathy. It's not entirely the fault of the population. There's been a change, as I mentioned, in the strategy of the country that has deprived people of a productive role, an exciting productive role when you do some job that helps humanity. If producing steel in a factory helps humanity, right? Driving a fast train that gets people somewhere helps humanity. Inventing, you know, electrical power stations uh, like Edison did helps humanity. But if you don't have skills and you don't have this, these opportunities, then you are, you're numbed in your emotional connection to the rest of the human race and to the future of, of everybody, including your own children and grandchildren. Well, I would love this approach of history to be taught in our public schools, private schools around the world, creating a curriculum and things like that. So 
how do you approach history when you're when you're thinking about doing research, when you're thinking about the concepts, the individuals, the the timeline, the great battles? What is your philosophical approach to writing about history? Well, I'm starting with some assumptions, not just intellectual assumptions, but with an emotion, which I'm lucky enough to have been, you know, to have grown up in contact with, you know, no child starts off as a moral person. They, they, they have that potential, but they, they, they have to get excited about something interesting. And then you can, they can get some moral idea, but moral ideas, the idea of justice, the idea of man's potential for, for winning against great odds in uplifting the character of, of the people of the world, and, and the character and the, the, really the reputation of man is lower than it should be. Man is entitled to, to be honored and to do those great things that would bring honor to human beings. And, and so all these, you know, I, when I read a biography of Eugene Debs, I was, I think I was 12 years old, something like that. And I remember playing a record of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach while reading this book it was the piano concerto in, in D minor. And I, I, it, it got fixed in my mind as the music being associated with this idea of a thirst for justice in the world. And so the, the, an idea that underlies the way I think history ought to be done also underlies every other useful thing. A uh, great thing. You see this with scientists. You see this with artists. You see this with statesmen, and with uh, other more regular things, parenthood, and a lot of things. But th you can't put it necessarily into words. But you can pick up from history, especially starting in in ancient history. This long struggle and, and exciting path, even though it's most of the time from, from below, but sometimes from above and soaring between those who want to uplift humanity and make, make people better and, and improve their lives, build cities, build cultures, poets who create languages, singers who create poetry. On the one side, and on the other side, cliques of families, which which become known as an oligarchy with an empire, who who devote themselves, and it's hard to grasp this for ordinary people, for me and anyone else. I think it's hard to grasp why, but they are dedicated to cruelty, and to a cruel philosophy, and to the idea that the universe is cruel, that. There's a cruel God. You saw, I mean, in modern times, you see this with Calvin in, in Switzerland and France and England, and Scotland, and Amsterdam, running all over the place. So it also, it also justifies rule when you're the elect, you know, you're rich because you're the elect and you're poor because, well, you're immoral. <laughs> you're, you're, it's not even that you're immoral. 
it's just because God chose you. Yeah. And for no, for his own reasons, which you can't understand, you can't understand what the universe is about. That it's unknowable. And so our side says that the, that the universe is knowable, not everything, you know, we're, we're going to take steps. We're going to make breakthroughs. We're not God, but we are in his image. And, and, and the, that means precisely this starting point of the emotion of creating something better. That's what, to, to me, that's what God is about. And that's what the universe clearly demonstrates scientifically. That's what you're looking for in science. You're looking for those, those breakthroughs that have occurred, even if they're over a long period of time or maybe instantaneous, you know, things that happen. But you want to look for the scientific background of this, of this upgrade of, of, of the universe, which is infinite in its potential. So in doing history, you have to look for, first of all, this conviction, this impetus, this motive of making, you know, seeking the good and seeking the truth. That's that, it, 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 because the truth is, is not for a cynic. It doesn't mean that you're, you're Pollyanna. It means that you, you see like the best scientists have done, and I hope the best historians, this goodness at the heart of the world and, and of nature and of man. So you look for this clash in history, but you base it, it's not an even clash. It's more, much more to be studied is our side. But in that contest, you can't take it out of the contest. It doesn't mean that everybody has to be studying all that, you know, and a civil engineer or a composer of music that's beautiful or a bridge that's beautiful doesn't have to study all of this history because they're doing something which, you know, advances mankind in a great way. But ultimately, citizens depend for self-government on having a view of this heritage, the heritage of this fight, despite the odds against the powers, the, this oligarchy, these self the, the people that see themselves as gods. So that you have to see this. And I've, I've pursued that now since the 19, I started writing things in the 1980s from that standpoint. Yeah, and the reclaiming of history, because so much of my generation growing up under a pretty brutal culture of the last 40, 50 years of austerity yeah. and scarcity and, and just Wall Street hedonism violence. And, and violence and on and on. And a, a pessimism and cynicism has grown in, yeah. in the American culture. And it's been supported by views from Howard Zinn, the people's history with a very Manichaean view of that America is always bad, it's always hurting and raping and pillaging and enslaving. And what you do in this book is you really lay out a clear, clear choice that happens within the actual creation of America. And, and all industry history is based on this, this kind of conflict and, and you go into many different themes, including trying to create a new understanding of the industrial revolution and the strategic context for America's founding, 
and and this framing between imperial britain against republican us and and there's so many other other themes that that you're going into but when you're looking at this this history 1750s to 1850s why did you focus on this and and why did you want to write for this this volume 1 let's to, to, i want to get into this through a question of current history the united states is currently made it business of our country to be in a conflict with China as well as Russia. I, I believe it can be proven rather simply that the issues between these two sides are not really human rights. We can get into that, at least as currently understood. The, the principal issue between those two sides is that China with Russia now is pursuing a, 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 a different path, a contrary and an alternative system to the global system that has been put together after World War II by the United States and Britain principally, which is a continuation of the, the, the longstanding doctrine of the British Empire. That's, that's our side, so-called our. I don't consider it my side. It's a globalist idea of ruling the world. And as I bring out in my book, the purpose of the, of the, the British empire shifted to, to a certain extent political operations in, at the end of the American revolution to deny to other countries the, the ability and the right to develop industry to develop strong powers in in controlling nature as the british had just gotten those powers in the industrial revolution no thanks to these imperialists they weren't the ones who sponsored the inventions that were made that was the republicans inside britain particularly benjamin franklin and his friends so the the our, we have the globalists on one side and we have china and russia particularly you can see this with china in their program called the Belt and Road, which is condemned by the United States and Britain for building infrastructure, high-speed trains, nuclear power plants, dams, all these strong industrial high-energy operations in places like Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, Central Asia, and so forth. There are various pretexts that are thrown in, but the, the central idea is that China is gaining influence and power itself to continue to build up this alternative idea. They use banks, for example, very large banks. I mean, they have some of the biggest banks in the world now. They're not banks like JP Morgan. Those banks do some things like that, and they are a somewhat part of the global system. So it's it's not all black and white here, but they're dedicated to building industry and uh, increasing the powers of production. And that's not, that, that system, to the extent that it persists, means the end of the globalist operation. Because you, it's in, what, what we're doing now, what our country and Britain are doing, is clearly unsustainable. We, they talk about sustainable industry, you know, with green, the Green New Deal or something like that. That's not sustainable. What's sustainable is progress. That is, the, if you increase man's scientific understanding and the skills of the population in 
powerful industry, you are going to continue to identify and bring into use new resources to replace resources that are either being used up or you want to replace them to guard the ecology or, or for some other reason. But you can't continue to crush, push down this uh, progress of living standards, use of energy, concentration of force to improve things. You can't do that because you'll, your society will fail. And clearly, in my view, the, the United States and Britain lead the way in the West as failed societies now, completely failed. So the, the, the issue between the United States, say, and China is on this question of the purpose of the government, the purpose of, this, of the nation, which is, in China's view, to uplift the population and to increase the power of that nation. That's against the rules of this so-called rules-based international order. And if you look back at our country, we definitively changed from that outlook that China now has after the murder of John Kennedy to forbid the former outlook of the United States that made the U.S. a great nation. So that's the standpoint from which I am looking into the Industrial Revolution. I, I went to England in 1988 to study Franklin's role and, and the role of his friends in Birmingham in particular. The steam engine project, that's James Watt and Matthew Bolton, and the, their American manager was brought over there by Franklin, William Small, and a whole set of people who, who built the canals, who developed the science at that time, like Priestley and others. And I saw there was a, a, a different, a fundamentally different idea about what happened. The whole setting for the American Revolution and the establishment of our government in the 1780s is this Industrial Revolution and the, the urgent need of our country for self-defense as well as to fulfill its mission of helping the people. And the government, is, that's the only purpose of a government, is to serve the interests of the people. There is no other purpose for a government. Otherwise, forget it. We don't need a government if it's not going to help us. So the, the, the background for our revolution was this startling development of new powers over nature, which the British Empire had just decided right then in the beginning of the 1780s, that America, France, and other countries in the world, not to speak of Africa, which they were then destroying, and so forth, and India and Ireland, but that no other country would have these powers. And we had to have those powers both to survive and to fulfill our mission for the welfare of the population. So I, I want to get into chapter one, but just for my audience, I do want to just put a bookend on, on the China discussion. And I think we all need to acknowledge that China has brought 600 million people out of poverty in the last 20 to 30 years. They, while the American Society of Civil Engineers in the United States say we have $4.5 trillion in infrastructure deficit just to get it to working condition, not even to get it to horizon technology condition, China's built 30,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in the last 20 years with another like 20 to 30,000 kilometers planned in the next 15 years. 
They just put in an order of $450 billion for about 150 nuclear reactors. So what they're doing, and they're also building across the world, unlike what the World Bank and IMF was supposed to do that they abandoned because of the financial control of London and Wall Street. How though would you respond to the critique that things like the social credit system is a highly authoritarian and it actually prevents the individual's creative function by being so subjected to a surveillance state. I think that's absolutely true. I think that that is a, that, that this surveillance, forget about the fact that this is happening in the United States, this is surveillance. I don't think it's, I mean, it, it, it's the, not unique in some yeah, ways. But, but, but this, the, the, it's not just one party rule. That's more complicated because it's called the Communist Party, but they, they have billionaires and they have private enterprise. This surveillance and this social pressure on the individual, I'm not talking about patriotism or people willing to, you know, do what they need to do to help their, their country and their society, whatever. I'm talking about the exert, top-down exertion through, the, through your neighbors of pressure on a family or on an individual. That's poison. And so that's, that's definitely a, a, a part of the problem in China, probably in Russia as well, although I don't think it's really the same. It's hard to know about these things definitively because there's so much attack propaganda against these countries. But, but I think you've identified something that is a serious you know, impediment to what, I, what we in, in, as Americans would rightfully like to see in a country, regardless of what's happened to our country. Yeah. Having said that, the, the, uh, a deeper issue right on that path of thinking has to be faced. And this is for both conservatives and liberals, any, any kind of person in our country now. And that is that if you have lost the empathy for other human beings, if you go like Nancy Pelosi did to Taiwan, claiming that you're doing it because of human rights, maybe Taiwan has a good, good human rights for, for LGBTQ or something on that order. That's what's in her mind. What else is in her mind? Not much. And you are clearly doing it to ramp up the, pro the probability of war on a catastrophic scale. You have to demand that people face this with their eyes right on it. What do you mean by human rights if you're going to have millions of people killed? What does that mean? What, what are you doing? You have to start by saying it's mindless. That's really the first feature of this. That's, and, and, and really, I would say that about the whole ruling class in, in the West, mindless, as well as serving their, so supposedly serving their own interests. Well, whatever that means, all, all human beings in a way have the same interests. So it, it's mindless, it's hysterical and so forth. But let's, the, the idea of human rights, you have to get to that. 
to start with. I, I think the, the, the best modern definition for human rights or, or the one that gets closest to what, what the way it should be looked at is Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, which was put forward by him in 1944, 41, before the U.S. was in World War II. And the, saying, what, what are we fighting for in the world? We, we, we weren't yet in the war, but this was his, the goal of patriotic Americans who, who admired the president as well as his own initiative. The four freedoms were freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. We don't agree with any of those today in our society. So what, I think you have to look at those and see why those are all key. They're all connected to one another. They're directly connected to the question of what's the world going to look like, the strategy for the world. Yeah, and it's a great way to organize other cultures and nations if we can agree upon that or not, if those are the yeah. fundamental concepts. Yeah, and everybody deserves criticism on those fronts, right? All the nations do, but all the nations should should work together to get to try to solve that problem. And it's not static, it's dynamic. It's a question of are we moving closer or further away from that? Yeah. And and in chapter one, you do focus on this background of Ben Franklin and England. And one of the things you point out was this Iron Act that English, the parliament, the English parliament passed, making it illegal in the colonies to produce iron. And the city of London, East India Company, Bank of England, uh, was really a part of controlling the colonies. And could you... Could you talk, you've, you've already mentioned a little bit about Benjamin Franklin going into England and working with some collaborators to help develop Manchester and, and elsewhere. But could you talk, talk about Franklin's role in the pre-revolutionary founding of a lot of these organizations and concepts? Okay. The, the Iron Act of 1750, which was passed by the British Parliament, uh, as a law for, for America, for the American colonies, forbid the production of iron products. It, it didn't exactly forbid people from producing raw iron, like from the ore, and then sending it over to England to be processed, to be used for manufacturing. So that then we would have to buy back tools and and uh, stoves and whatever else, you know, as if we couldn't make those things for ourselves. Well, why did they do that? Well, to con the obvious first reason, a couple of obvious reasons. One of them is to build up manufacturing in England. That was part of their whole protectionism, right? They had tariffs, strong tariffs, even though they were they started on, in the 1780s to preach free trade to other countries. They didn't practice themselves. So they had restrictions on, it, on trade as much as they could for, to build up strategically important manufacturing. This, the, the other obvious reason is that if the, if the Americans get manufacturing, they're going to, it's, it's going to lead to independence for the colonies. The, the, the hold over the Americans will be, will be weakened just by that. On a deeper level, you have the, this attitude of the establishment, the, the, rule, the ruling 
clique in, in England, the, the, big, the highest families and their institutions, the city of London financial district, the Privy Council and the monarchy, the landed aristocracy, and also crucially their brother oligarchies in Amsterdam and Geneva, some places in Italy and so forth, but particularly that you have the Anglo-Dutch financial empire. So what is their idea in that ruling group? It is hostile to the very idea of man's ennoblement. Man, it must be taught that human beings are worthless trash. Then must be not uh, allowed access to those things that would raise their sights, raise their thinking, raise their skills, all of that together. This, the Iron Act, as a, as a part of that, drew a response at the time from Benjamin Franklin. I believe it was the following year, 1751, his essay attacking this Iron Act was published somewhere, I think in published it in England. And it was on the increase of pop, on the question of population. And where he said, America is going to have this wonderful constant surge of population increase. And we're going to be, we're going to be developing our powers. We're not a threat to England. We don't want to have a war with England. That's, that's the mother country it was at the time. We mean no harm to anyone, but this is our destiny. We are, you know, we're creative people and we're going to have a, a big increase in population. Malthus was the British economist. He was hired by the East India Company, just control, controlled in the government by Shelburne, the one who changed the British regime to this, this no, no industry policy. So Lord, Lord Shelburne was around the 1780s yeah. prime minister, I guess. And he saw that he came into power after the colonies were, it was towards the end of the war and the colonies were now independent of England. Yeah. And he said, well, we can look at different ways that we can destroy the colonies. And one is using a lot of uh, propaganda, essentially hiring people like Adam Smith and Thomas Malthus right. to, to push these ideas and concepts. Right. So he, it, it, a crucial point was that they, he, he saw better than these, these obviously brutal guys in the, in the Lord North administration around King George III. He saw that the colonies would not be subdued by force. And so it, it, it was a fast shift into this new, this new regime, which is just fulfilling the ideas of this oligarchy from before. He got his money from Ireland and India, from the looting and destruction of these countries. But Malthus wrote, in, in a sense, in response to Franklin, although he wrote it later, that population will naturally increase faster than the means to, to feed the population. And that, that the means of production of food and, and by implication, the other things is based entirely on nature's riches. And once you start using those riches, 
they run out. And, and, and the pr primary thing he's concentrating on is food production. And of course, this is contrary to the history of mankind. Clearly, as populations increase and as the, the discoveries in agriculture and science and other, and other kinds of science besides direct chemistry or things directly related, as that increases, including the population increases, there's a, a more than proportional increase in the production of food. You add riches to the soil. You, you recycle manure, you recycle other things, and you, 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 you pay attention to the irrigation and to the enrichment of the soil. You can't, you have to pay attention or you could denude the soil and, and obviously make it into a wasteland. But man's powers over nature have given us the power to have more than a proportional increase in food production. So it's a lie, like you were talking about Calvin, it's a lie that is used to justify the looting of countries by things like the East India Company. And the East India Company itself hired Malthus to be their first professor uh, at their college, teaching political economy and teaching this doctrine. It was followed by Ricardo, who, who, who the British economist who said that people occupy the best lands first and then they use up the riches of the land. And it's part of that was to justify landlords getting money for doing nothing. Henry Carey wrote uh, the, the refutation of this. He was working in the movement that he headed the, the movement for agricultural reform, as well as protectionist econ economics and so forth that, that involved Lincoln directly. And the two of them worked together on the measures that the Lincoln administration put through when, when he was president. So this, this is our background that goes back to this challenge to America's purposes back in the colonial period. Yeah. And you, you wrote about Henry Carey, and this comes a little bit later in the book, about how he showed that the British forced India out of manufacturing into growing opium for the British, drugging and, and helping the conquest of China. And then their theorist, Malthus, Thomas Malthus, blamed the resultant Indian starvation on overpopulation and the whole idea that this theoretical basis for a worldwide imperial system for crushing the poor, we see again and again. We see it with Paul Ehrlich, population bomb, and these people that are wrong again and again about the linear growth of, being, of agriculture, not considering technology, new discoveries and the exponential growth of, of humanity. It, it's just, it's insane that these, these <laughs> are recycled 200 years later, even though they've been debunked again and again. I want to get at one point that Lincoln and his advisor, Henry Carey, made about labor and capital so that people are, are, are not misled by anything in the current political spectrum. Uh, they were both advocates for the idea of the harmony of interests of all the people in society. I'm not talking about some clique that's trying to blow the world up, you know, sitting somewhere else and, and starting wars all over the place or in the empire. But all of the people which have normal interests in our country have, just like country, nations do, have a harmony of their interests. So labor and capital, Lincoln said labor has, is deserving of more 
preference than capital because it, it, you, 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 there is no such thing as capital without labor. You can't have labor without capital use, right? But there is a harmony of interests. Now, that means that when the government, say, makes a tariff to protect home industry from cheap imports, this benefits an industry and allows them to pay higher wages. Now, the best representatives of this protectionist idea who were all clustered around in industry around Henry Carey as their teacher, like the Pennsylvania Railroad and other, other you know, machine building industries in Philadelphia, the best of those people saw this harmony of interests and dedicated themselves to improving the country. Now, there's another sort of businessman, obviously. There's another idea about these interests. And that idea is that labor and capital hostile basic interests. Those are two completely different approaches to the world. You mean the Marxian approach? Well, Marxian it's Marx, but it's also yeah. it's also John D. Rockefeller, right? And or 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 uh, John Foster Dulles, right? John Foster Dulles said, I quote that in my treason book, his letter to his father, that all the world, in all the world, you have to have somebody. The world is like a big wheel, goes in the mud at the bottom, and there's always going to be somebody on the bottom. You need an iron hand over society to make sure that the other people who aren't on the bottom can maintain their place while the lower people are crushed. So this is the idea of a, a clash. You see this in the three started by Andrew Carnegie. I'm going to be getting into this stuff in the second volume that I've now write in this 1870s. He started off building these great steel mills using the tariffs that were established by Lincoln and Kerry during the Civil War. And this provided very good wages and tremendous benefits to building up the country and its living standards. As time went on, the Wall Street, the new Wall Street rulers, Vanderbilt, and then most important, John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan got increasing power clashed with these, these nationalist industrialists and took over things like the oil industry, railroads, took over Thomas Edison's electrical industry and so forth. In that process, a guy named Frick, Henry Clay Frick, who, who provided coke, coking coal to, to Carnegie's company, got into power in that company and became the manager of, of, of Carnegie's company. And he shifted the idea from the harmony of interests. And maybe Carnegie was, Carnegie was a rich man. He, he was certainly interested in his own getting rich and all this, but he was acting for the benefit of the country, as, as was the government of Lincoln that was it, it working with these kind of industrialists. But what happened with Frick is that he turned the philosophy directly around for that company to say that labor was the enemy as well as the necessary producer. You know, those two things don't go together, really. Yeah. In the long run, you can't, society can't work like that. It's a contradiction. Yeah, it is. So, but anyway, that ruined the whole situation. And 
he had to eventually Carnegie had to give up his industry to J.P. Morgan, and and he he became a a, a fool in in many respects. It's sad, terribly sad. And not everybody did that. So many there were many people in that generation who, without Lincoln's leadership and without Henry after Henry Carey died, without the proper leadership, you know, people, you know, the the, the sheep go astray. And at the end of volume one, you do talk about how Carnegie was helping with the the union right when Lincoln was coming through Baltimore to be inaugurated. Carnegie was around there at that time and getting, he came into the Capitol after like facing a riot, helping union development to try to secure yeah. some of the rail and the telegraph lines as well, which I, I was not familiar with. Yeah. And uh, I've also been to Pittsburgh and been to the Frick Museum. He's got a great car for museum that. for what his museum? award his award for but a car museum oh, a for car all museum. his cars uh-huh. and it, oh, his boy. great rewards for crushing the homestead uh, strikers with some I think Pinkerton at that time. Yeah. But but getting back to some of these names that I never learned about in my history and I've been fortunate to come across your work. So you have Lord Shelburne and he starts bringing together different centers of intelligence and different networks of influencers and conspirators and and working with Jeremy Bentham that I was able to read during my political science, political philosophy class. You, oh, you get boy. to read Bentham and you get to read a John Stuart Mill and utilitarianism. And these guys were working to have their allies within the United States with Aaron Burr with Albert Gallatin, who's in the front of the treasury building, Hamilton's in the back of the uh, treasury building. Yeah. And they were influencing Jefferson at this time. Right. And, and Jefferson went and, and essentially kind of turned away from George Wythe, who was a part of the, the, the Franklin circle and to really start supporting the, the Confederate, well, the slave holding interests. Could you talk about how Jefferson pretty much went against the this this development of the United States. Well, of course, the 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 heart of the of that story is the clash between Jefferson and Hamilton in the beginning of the government in the in the early 1790s. And Jefferson worked with Madison. Actually, was the leader of Madison at that time. Washington saw. Jefferson as being responsible for Madison changing from a nationalist to an anti-nationalist. In my book, I, I developed the sequence of events in, in Jefferson's life and in the development of the new government to demonstrate what, what happened with Jefferson, that he changed his, his approach. I think that, you know, his inner life is very murky to outsiders. It was at the time, and it's certainly at a distance it is. It is for us now, but he definitely changed what he did in the world and the approach that he conveyed and, 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 and his attack. In the beginning, he was in the general faction with the, his teacher, George Weiss, that you said, with W-Y-T-H-E, great man in, in Virginia, anti-slavery and teacher at William and Mary College, scientist law teacher, and also George Washington and other people who believed in the Republic, even if they were slave owners, even if they were in a, a colony and, you know, 
they they were aiming at transforming society to a better a better model and jefferson was part of that so he he wrote the declaration of a draft with coaching from franklin and john adams and he was he was definitely among the spirits promoting the end of slavery at that time and you have this famous, used to be famous, the Northwest Ordinance that was passed by the Congress before, before it became the United States Congress. It was the, during the colonial period. It was the Continental Congress that said that, there sh that it, was his, it was his idea, Jefferson's idea, that the, the Ohio and the Western territories should, should have no slavery. By, by the law passed through the Congress. And later he abandoned the, the, all of this point of view. And I, I show what happened. I, I'm using only really one piece of evidence about the family relation that's involved there uh, the, and, and the influence that's involved there. But there's other, other even more important things in his, in his life. But it's a letter from Edmund Randolph, the first... Of, of these aristocratic families of Virginia. It was related to Jefferson's family. A letter from him to Jefferson at a time when Jefferson's reputation was wrecked. He had been the governor of Virginia during the revolution and had performed poorly in response to the British invasion of Virginia. Had to flee a couple of times didn't put together a good defense and was he, he, the public looked you know badly on him what he what he had done how his performance and he was threatening to quit politics and sulk and so this letter from Edmund Randolph said you can't quit we we need you to represent southern interests And the, implying that that is your, that's how you will be able to get into politics and flourish and have a high place. You'll be a star if you represent Southern interests. Randolph was one of those Southern slave owners and aristocratic families who supported the American Revolution on their terms. It wasn't to transform society, it was to set up a separate government from England, but not really a different society or really separate from them in many ways. So Jefferson went in that direction from, from about that time. He, he began to study the economic philosophy of Adam Smith and others like him that would justify an oligarchy ruling society. That is that people don't have the right to have a government that interferes with business and trade in their own favor. The government cannot exist to serve the interests of the people. That's Adam Smith's basic idea. Keep the government out. It can only protect property, basically. Existing property, not to produce new property, right? So then he was appointed, while he still had the reputation as the author of the Declaration of Independence in Congress, he was appointed ambassador to France. This is before the Constitution, right? 
to replace Franklin. So he goes over to France. And in France, the British underground in France, which includes people from Geneva, I'll get into that in a minute. This is British intelligence operatives and allies of the British Empire who are cooking up some way of destroying France and trying to separate France and America to break up this terrifying alliance of these two great peoples against the British Empire. They want to break that up. Jefferson goes there and he is gets in with the Shelburne apparatus in this British intelligence apparatus in France. He wrote a book while in the USA, continued writing it in, going into France called Notes on Virginia. And in that book, the new Jefferson, as I would call him, the new bad Jefferson, says that America should not have manufacturing. Manufacturing just makes dirty cities and mobs. You can't have progress with manufacturing. And of course, he has to know better because he, one of his great teachers who he loves was William Small, who at that time was the manager of the steam engines project for Bolton and Watt uh, and, and Franklin in England. And, and they paid good wages and it was a wonderful place to be. It wasn't dirty and it wasn't you know pernicious. So he knew that. He wrote to William Small. So this is a big lie about manufacturing. They, yes, there, you can have a bad factory owner and a policy, a deliberate policy of low wages and, and using women and children and exploiting the hell out of everybody. But that doesn't come from manufacturing. That's ridiculous. It doesn't come from machines. It comes from human policy. So then at a certain point, just before what was known as the French Revolution started, with Shelburne's people pouring into France to take the side of a certain aristocratic faction against the royal family and against the American-style revolution that was also brewing over there, Lafayette and his friends. The British were trying to anarchize that, and, and, and Jefferson went in with that British effort. He never said, I'm pro-British, but Shelburne himself sent a man into France, Douglas Stewart, who became a, for about several months, the teacher of Thomas Jefferson, met with Jefferson on a, like a daily basis to confer about economics. He was the great teacher and executor for, you know, of the doctrines of Adam Smith. And, and the, the personal secretary for Shelburne sent him to Jefferson. And this was just before Jefferson returned to the USA. So he learned the British empire economics. Now, Jefferson has a reputation for being anti-British. How do you square these two things? You can't go by rhetoric. And it's also complicated by the fact that his enemies in New England were pro-British and accused him of being pro-French, which was also true in many ways. They called him an atheist, all these things. So it's not just black and white and good guys and bad guys. I'm talking about how Jefferson changed. So he goes back to America. The government, the new government under the Constitution is starting up. And he calls Madison down from the Capitol, which at that time is New York City, before Washington, D.C. was established, comes down to the Jefferson Plantation. Jefferson just landed. 
It's on a hill with 600 slaves and all these aristocratic families all around, Randolph and these other guys. And they're there in the Christmas holidays. And he's telling Madison, look, our new mission is to stop the new U.S. government from pursuing this policy that's being announced by Washington and Hamilton and, and all this highfalutin nonsense about progress from Franklin and these other guys. So Madison goes back to the Congress and he, Madison had been a great ally of Hamilton during the Constitutional Convention and, and, and in the Revolution. And so he shocked Hamilton by point by point attacking Hamilton's program. And then when Jefferson got in the government as the first Secretary of State, he became the leader of this attack. They brought in Aaron Burr and Albert Gallatin to help them. These are basically foreign, foreign spies. Burr is born an American. Gallatin's from Switzerland. But the, the, this attack on Hamilton was, there was nothing good about it. So, so in chapter six, you call it the new economic system. And if I could just read. Yeah, go ahead. Talking about Hamilton, the American mission of progress embodied in Hamilton's proposals and the fight over implementing that program formed the essential core of world history ever since. All later economic progress has proceeded from that revolutionary policy outlook. The fundamental contest of the two sides, progressive nationalism, versus finance-based imperial interests has continued up to the present. And you go into this scene where Madison, or Hamilton is now the treasury secretary, treasury secretary, and Washington is asking him to, you know, report on things like a national bank, on manufacturers, and these very important documents that become the founding blueprint of what will later become the American system. And Madison, who was friends with Hamilton, going point by point, saying that, well, if you have this central bank, it's it's going to be utilized by the speculators and the wealthy. And so using populist smokescreen saying, we can't have a central bank because if we have a central bank, it's going to hurt all these poor people. And Franklin comes in and says, let's let's do an anti let's do an anti-slavery petition as we're trying to form. I formed this constitution and it was voted down or moved to committee, but it exposed all these people who were using populist rhetoric about caring for the, the lower class people and yet on being unwilling to prevent slavery or end slavery. But I, I do want to focus on, on Hamilton's proposals of the tariff, of the internal yeah. improvements and of the importance of a national bank. And right now we see the Federal Reserve, it is spending whatever it takes to bail out Wall Street, to keep Wall Street going. And there's this growing movement of the awareness that the Federal Reserve does not support the interests of the American population. However, the solution that's being offered now is to end the Federal Reserve instead of maybe nationalizing it or reconstituting it to become more of a credit focused bank that's focusing on developing infrastructure and production. So. I, could you lay out just the outline of, of some of Hamilton's major concepts in political economy? Yeah, you have, you have to start with the intention. So Hamilton is promoting a, a set of measures. And in all that he writes, a, a high 
ambition for the country. He's constantly focusing on that. Man's higher, nobler aspirations. And he, that is an international idea. It's a universal idea. This is very important because, you know, just to contrast it, Donald Trump was for high tariffs or some other kinds of protection for American industry. And part of that was to keep Mexicans out of the United States to protect us from low-wage workers coming in. What about Mexico? What should Mexico do? Should we destroy Mexico as we're doing? He didn't care. He didn't say anything about that. And that's, it's false. It's completely false. It's not the same thing as, as Hamilton was doing, right? This is a universal idea that man as what man is with his divine characteristics and, and creativity, man as a species has this right and the necessity to advance in his powers, in his skills, in his knowledge, in his culture, in his attitudes, in his love for his neighbor, all these things. So the, the set of measures that Hamilton proposed, protect manufacturing, build infrastructure to make it work, transportation so that you're not just dragging things on a, on a, on a sled behind you through the mud, and, and credit the National Bank for the purpose of having ample monetary resources that, is, that are directed towards productive enterprises, directed top-down by the government. doesn't mean the government runs all banks or runs all of the, doesn't run the businesses, but directs the policy that, that is energizing the use of credit in the country for these purposes. And he is rooted in the history of Europe, where Europe did the right thing. When that was done in England, under, to a certain extent, under Elizabeth I, and in France, under some of the earlier kings, with Colbert, the, the, the advisor to Louis XIV, who had this policy of building up a nation and, and its powers to produce. So this is Hamilton's idea. And, the, and if I could just add, it was also to, to counteract speculators and users. That's right. Unchecked would always lead to general ruin. That's right. The Bank of the United States had as its part of its mission, and it effectively carried that out with Hamilton in charge of it when he was Treasury Secretary. And the second iteration of that, of the second Bank of the United States, when Nicholas Biddle was the president of it, interfered directly with the operations of speculators by pressing that when they would issue notes based on hot air and, and, and cause mayhem in the economy, like our, our derivatives people and offshore bankers do now, they would press them to the wall to stop that activity. And they, got, they, they, they couldn't get away with it when, when, when the bank was operating the way it should. But that's not simply a negative function. You, you can't understand it just by looking at these bad guys somewhere. You have to understand what I was talking about with Hamilton and then later with Biddle. Their purpose is the purpose that Franklin embodied during the time of his universal mission in, 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 for every country in the world. It was a very happy man because he had the whole world for a playground, right? For those, for those ideas. So this is Hamilton's approach. The Bank of the United States was very successful insofar as it was in operation. The second bank 
was not so successful until Monroe, President Monroe, appointed Nicholas Bill to be its president. You could have somebody in charge of it who's got different ideas about tight, tight credit and a lot of, you know, helping speculate and so forth. So if you now look at the Federal Reserve, remember that the Federal Reserve started in 1913. Forget about who's owning it. That's really not the important thing. The, the real issue is that it is a part of a system of central banks with the Bank of England as a crucial pole of the whole thing, but with these oligarch families and interests in Europe operating through these central banks and other large banks to control the world. And so if that comes to the United States in the form of a Federal Reserve, it's part of the assertion of power by that oligarchy over the government. Some people call it a money power. That's a little bit of an amorphous idea, but it, it has a certain ring to it because you know the, the love of money is the root of all evil, right? And that's true. So the Federal Reserve, what's the, what's the intention? The intention comes from that oligarchy. It doesn't come from the Federal Reserve. It doesn't just come from bankers either. It comes from this, this imperial entity in the world, this phenomena, this, this imperium, you could call it that, uh, which is a survival from the Dark Ages and from ancient Rome and from Babylon and from terrible societies that were existed to fool and, and destroy man's best, best properties. So this is now, it still exists. It's the uh, Promethean idea, and that's what you you focus on. That's right. Where yeah. you have you have Zeus and the gods up there, and saying man can't have fire, and Prometheus comes and steals it, knowing the consequences of his torture, because yeah. he had foresight, and stole it and gave it to the humans. And yeah, that's because the humans. Yeah. You know, Plato and Socrates got in trouble for supposedly dis disbelieving in the gods or or spreading skepticism about the Greek gods, which is not really true, but they were, they, what they were doing was they were pretty light on that subject, but they were contradicting Plato and, and Socrates contradicted this impossible, scientifically impossible idea that a cruel God rules the universe or that gods themselves who have power in nature hate mankind or, or are fools who cheat on their wives and stuff like that. You know, they, Plato's, in Plato's work and Socrates' words, that can't be true. How is that possible? That, 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 that if you look into nature with a scientific mind, if you go above the world to really see it, and Socrates said, you have to do that to see the world. You have to go above it. Then you see that the, the, the beauty and the, the noble purposes that are in nature and from the creator. So this, so that in a sense, it's a slightly different take on Prometheus. Yes, Prometheus is fighting the god Zeus, but there's also, you could say that Zeus, there can't be anything like Zeus. That these people, these oligarchs falsely put themselves up as, as gods. And I think that's part of the the metaphor in the Prometheus that it that Zeus in that bad character 
represents the oligarchy and the these cruel empires that that people have to be willing to sacrifice everything to to out you know winning over them uh so the yeah that's 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 the that's the that and that is the fountain for me for history so we're we're getting close to to the time right now where we should be wrapping up but you then in the second part of your book you focus on when these hamiltonian policies actually get moving it becomes the american system and you identify some of the founding statesmen that really really helped promote it henry carey henry clay john quincy adams dewitt clinton matthew carey nicholas biddle and joseph gardner swift and your entire book is filled with great citations this is not just opinion writing and things like that you have all the receipts for everything and it, it really does provide a completely different perspective of what our mission is today and fighting for sovereignty is your chapter eight where it's right after kind of the war of 1812 when the british came in and burnt down the white house and the united states suffered all of the missed policies the, the problematic policies of jefferson and gallatin to reduce investments and things like that but could you talk about the american system and how it's relevant today as well well, let's take this guy that you mentioned, Joseph Gardner Swift. He's a, a military officer, he's the chief engineer of the United States, and he was a superintendent of West Point. He was the second superintendent starting at the time of the War of 1812. And he was a leader of the building up of U.S. industry and infrastructure. The Army Corps of Engineers that he commanded played a very important role in that. And I, I bring that up because What's the model for our military? What, how, what should military strive to do in the world and for our country? Instead of simply attacking the military, as hippies did in the 1960s, the, the, the anti-Vietnam movement got waylaid into this counterculture, right? But instead of simply attacking the military, What's the mission? What should be the mission? What did the military do? What did these army engineers do? They, that's what West Point was built, was changed in that period by Joseph Gardner Swift and his immediate allies into this center for engineering development. And they also built a, a massive production apparatus, a manufacturing, the West Point foundry. It was to build infrastructure in the United States and some of the engineers that came out of that also built Russia's first railroad. And this, this whole thing, John Quincy Adams appointed as president, appointed army engineers to design America's first railroads, one after another, starting with the Baltimore and Ohio, the first commercial railroad. So these are army engineers who many of them in still lieutenants and captains. Some of them resigned into, to get into this, but they're trained for this purpose. And so what, what about now? What should the military, what could we use the military for? First of all, if you destroy your manufacturing capabilities and your transportation, as we've done in the past half century, 
Do you have a defense capability? No, your society is defenseless. It's crumbling. You can start a war with nuclear weapons and kill everybody, but you can't build anything. You can't build up civilization. You're not intending to. But the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Space Force or whatever the new thing is, look what they could do. I read an article, a wonderful article, about the overview effect. I think that's what it was called. You can look it up. It's, it's the, I, what happened to astronauts who got into space and looked back and saw the Earth from high above it and were overwhelmed with a completely new feeling. Wait a minute. There we are. That's who we are. It's not just an, a, an ideal thing about all men are brothers, although that's, you, you get to that. But this is who we are. We have a, we have a common destiny. You know, there's a joke about aliens asking each other if there's intelligent life on Earth. And one of them says, no, obviously not. They're pointing their missiles at themselves. But so what the, 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 the astronaut with this effect, this overview effect, is consumed with anger at the pettiness of politicians starting these wars and making enemies of these other countries. And the author cites many African countries that are the young people want to get into the space program. Some of them are a little bit inspired by, I think, some of the things China is doing in Africa, like building the Grand Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia, which the U.S. and Britain oppose. We used to be doing that sort of thing. Kennedy did that in West in West Africa with Nkrumah. They built so, high-speed rail in Kenya before we could do it in California. <laughs> right. That's right. So this, this higher idea of man's destiny is certainly in our history the 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 success story for our military. When the military was successful and the country was successful, we had this higher idea which directly contradicts the ruling philosophy of our country today. Freedom from want means that everybody's entitled to a good standard of living, and we need them to have a good standard of living if they're going to do any good, if they're going to produce anything, if they're going to do, be civilized. Freedom from fear. Don't start wars. No war. I, I personally am against all wars. I don't think there's in modern society, you need any war. And I know from personal, you know, research and my own personal background that World War II could have been prevented by not sponsoring Hitler. How about not doing that to start with? You know, that started in the Bank of England in the 1920s, early 1920s. They, they had fascism in Austria, then Italy, then Germany, all of it sponsored by Montague Noren in the Bank of England. Don't do that. If you want not to have another world war, we could prevent World War III now. So I'm not saying get rid of the military. I think we need a military. You need to have, you need to have the capability of force until perfection comes about. But you're going to avoid war and by having the confidence between countries based on good intentions. That, that's, the, that's every, our greatest peace-loving presidents from this contradictory theme in history were George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt.
and and I think you could add Kennedy to that, but they were war leaders, weren't they? They didn't start the wars. Certainly, George Washington did not invade London with American troops. It was the opposite, right? The British invaded Massachusetts. Lincoln did not start the Civil War, whatever some Confederate diehard says about it. And Franklin Roosevelt, again, wanted to avoid war. Yes, he wanted to help the people that were standing up against Hitler. But from the very beginning of his presidency, Hitler was put in against him. I think that was a big reason why Hitler was put in at that moment. Because Roosevelt same month, 1933. <laughs> yeah, and Roosevelt was elected president. So before Roosevelt took office, Hitler took over the government in Germany with backing from these bankers and industrialists who were London and New York based in many respects. So it's also it tells yeah. a lot when three out of four of those presidents were died in office and two were assassinated. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So Kennedy had a program which in so many respects contradicts the views of our, our, our country and, he, and in our society today. The program that he got to after surviving the first year and, and learning to how to counteract the CIA and this, this hell faction in the Pentagon led by Lyman Lendenser. You know, the, uh, the movie Seven Days in May is about a military coup in the United States. And the movie was, came from a book, but Kennedy helped to have it produced. They, they filmed some of it in the White House. Well, uh, he left there so they could use the White House. And this was about the actual coup that was going on against him that ended in this being murdered. That's the real truth of the thing. I would recommend that people see it. Lyman Lemnitzer was this horrifying character. He's the one who proposed bombing Miami and blaming it on Cuba. And doing sniper shootings in the U.S. and Washington, yeah. D.C. And so the, he and Dulles at the CIA, who, who both betrayed Roosevelt at the end of World War II, were, were the leaders of this faction in, within the U.S., working with the British uh, uh, Tories and the British Empire and, 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 and the royal family, right? Prince Philip and, and Prince Bernard in, in Amsterdam, that they had this anti-progress philosophy. So this is the, the, uh, the murder apparatus that still is with us now. And they're, they're unapologetic about it. So they, you don't have a debate about any of this stuff. People just don't pay any attention to anything outside the USA right now. And they don't pay much attention to our country either. And all look at all these, just, you want to find out why a lot of the people who support Trump do so, their lives are shattered, right? Look at Ohio. Look at the, the former industrialized areas. We did to ourselves what Hitler couldn't do to us. We did it voluntarily to de-industrialize yeah. and the greatest center of production in the world had ever seen up to yeah. that point in Detroit and so, elsewhere. That's right. So we have a right as human beings to have good jobs, to have the conditions the actual conditions, not just the theory that we can rise in society. We have to have the actual conditions that give people actual opportunities to make a better life for themselves. They should have private initiative. They should have their own spunk and build their families and themselves up. 
but you have to be able to give them a chance to do it, not close everything down and, and dictate to them through these mega corporations and speculators and narcotics banks and everything else that runs the world, the Western world today. It's a, it's just a, it's just a lie that you're that America is it, is people say it's still the land of opportunity. Well, I mean, I suppose in some respects it is, but the the, the whole idea of it has changed against that. That the 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 ruling idea is this British imperial philosophy announced really in the 1780s at the time we were fighting our revolution, that people and nations do not have the right to rise. They don't have the right to have power. Power is a good thing for people to have. It can be misused by ugly cliques who take over governments or who exercise some coercion on people or, 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 or make people you know, degrade themselves and help, help them to do that. But, but power in history is what we're aiming for. The power of human beings to do good. We lost that, that idea in looking back. Now that's what we need now. And that's happening. There is that still in the world. We have to look for that and, and foster that and encourage that and work with other countries that we don't agree with, that we don't you know, that we have issues with. Every nation has the same interest to have that kind of a rise of mankind. Let people give them a chance to do, you know, to accomplish things and to be civilized and to help their neighbor. So that's, that's our background. That's, our, that's who we are. That's why I named the book that. And I'm working on on the second volume that will go from it will go from Lincoln to Teddy Roosevelt. The third volume will be the 20th century through FDR and Kennedy, and then an epilogue about what happened since. So, so where can people find and support your work? Uh, the book "Who We Are: America's Fight for Universal Progress" from Franklin to Kennedy, Volume One, is available. You can buy it from Amazon.com, or they can order it at a bookstore, and the bookstore can order it. And uh, it's a paperback, and it's also a Kindle, an ebook. It's about twenty bucks for the paperback, and about ten dollars for the Kindle. I have a website; they can get in touch with me at info at AntonChaitkin.com. And uh, you know, I'd like to, to, you know, talk to people about these things, and and I will encourage. I have a lot of videos on on. Some of them on YouTube and in other ways, my articles are on the internet, but the book represents and the stuff I'm working on now represents what I've put my life into and what our whole country was really about before we got waylaid, that, that shifted. So we have, that's, that's, that's what America's really all about. Yeah. And reclaiming our history and our destiny as humankind. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope that maybe in a future conversation we could talk about things like the American Indians, the tragedy of the abortion of the American development in the West when we built the Great Railroad and the Indian, their, their herd of buffaloes, and that was what it amounted to, was, was cut right in half. 
and their way of life was was ended. The the people that had a better idea about developing the United States, not these oligarchs, wanted to have such a development in the West and hooking up with the countries in Asia and others that there would have been massive opportunities for the Indians in a new kind of life. That was never offered to the Indians. They were sold out. They were they, they, the, the people that got in control of the country increasingly at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, took the same attitude towards the Indians that the Southern slave owners had when they grabbed the Cherokee lands and other stuff, that there's, there's only so much land and we don't care about these people. We'll, we'll destroy them. They're in the way of our, our greed. That wasn't the attitude of the people that actually created the progress in the United States. This is a this is a different kind of a history. The Indians were, did not, the Plains Indians didn't have the kind of advanced capabilities that their ancestors had had in Central America and in other parts of North America. They got shunted over into the Plains and they had this more ruder kind of hunter civilization so that you see that advanced knowledge of science and knowledge of the secrets of nature and capabilities to transform nature for man's purposes. You have to have that to protect your self-government and your way of life. You're, you're going to be wrecked if you don't have that. That's what happened to the Indians. In a certain way, the USA is in the same position now with regard to China. USA is, is, is really more and more primitive compared to China. What should we do about that? Should we attack them with our bows and arrow, our nuclear bows and arrows, or should we work together? China actually did offer the hand of friendship, unlike what Teddy Roosevelt did for the Indians. They didn't offer the hand of friendship. Andrew Jackson stood on them. But others did, but they weren't powerful enough. Now the United States is in the same position. We are more backward now than China. We have more nuclear weapons, but that's, that's not a good path towards saving your life. You're going to kill yourself. So this history, it's a tragedy if you don't have this kind of joint development that where people are seeing their common interest and, and their common humanity especially those who are not part of your culture. You have to work with people that you don't agree with, that you don't understand. You get a better understanding of that. Well, you could learn from the Indians and you could learn from other people today in these other cultures, you know, that, that, that have an ancient civilization. So that, this, this is, a, a, I guess, an endless topic, but the crimes committed in the name of the United States, have a background in this clash within our country and within the West, where what the West really represents at its best was betrayed and attacked by a faction that wanted its own power. But our advances occurred nevertheless by people with a different idea who were not out to murder everybody and to murder other cultures.
and to uplift all humans everywhere to That's greater right. prosperity and greater yeah. potentiality. Yeah. So I could speak all day long and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Everyone should go out and look and buy your book, Who We Are, America's Fight for Universal Progress from Franklin to Kennedy. And this is volume one, 1750s to 1850s. Anton Chaikin, thank you so much. Thank you, Evan. Wonderful to speak with you.